Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Another day, another trade skirmish. The U.S. went after the European Union for, among other things, uh, their Airbus subsidies, as well as wine and cheese. The European Union saying this is ridiculous, a proposal for $11 billion of goods potentially tariffed by the U.S., and that they will retaliate in kind. Joining us now to discuss why now? Sean Donnan, uh, Bloomberg senior trade reporter here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Normally, he's down in Washington, D.C. We are so lucky to have him. Sean, why now? Why now? It's uh, well, um, let's think back to uh, what Donald Trump cares about when it comes to trade. And he cares about big deficits. And the U.S. is a big trade deficit uh, with the EU, $170 billion or so last year. And he's been gearing up for a fight. Yeah, so he's been gearing up for a fight, but he has a bunch on his hands already. He has one with China. He has one. He's working through the USMCA, if I got that correctly. Uh, but, you know, he, he's got he's got a lot of irons in the fire right now with trade. Well, it's a reminder that the trade wars aren't just about China. It's they're all over the place, and uh, you know there's a there's a trade war that's still going on in some ways with Canada and Mexico. Even though you've got the USMCA, there's still tariffs that are still in place there. There's uh, negotiations that are going to get underway with Japan. I think there's a this is a reminder that a lot of us were thinking that as the U.S. and China got close to a deal, and they are getting close to a deal, we think we're going to see something in the next month or so. Um, that. The things were going to calm down, that this kind of shadow that was hanging over the global economy of, of the trade wars was going to go away. Well, it isn't, because Donald Trump still wants to take on all of these other trading partners like the EU, like Japan. These are big economies that Donald Trump is gearing up for a fight. Let's go to this one with the EU about uh, aviation. I mean, like if Boeing doesn't have enough problems with the 737 MAX, it now has to deal with with this issue. Give us a little history here, because these are both industries that have been highly subsidized, and there's been tariffs for a long period of time. It's, it seems like we've been rereading about this issue, Airbus and Boeing and others, for a long time. Yeah, this is the longest-running fight in the WTO. It's been going on for 14 years. I think there's, there's one element of normality about what Donald Trump is doing, and that uh, these are going to be tariffs that uh, are likely to be sanctioned by the WTO. This is going to be allowed under global trading rules. Normally, Donald Trump wants to go around the WTO or rail against the WTO. And we saw him tweet today, you know, citing the WTO's ruling on illegal subsidies here. It's one of the longest running fights. It's a fight that's that has kind of refused to go away. It's also a fight that you hear people in the administration cite as an example of what is wrong with the WTO and the global trading system. Why is it that it takes 14 years to solve something like this? So, Sean, I love that you're here. Sean Donnan, he's been covering trade for a long time. You have a sense of what's real and what's not. And what I thought was really compelling this morning was when these headlines hit, the market didn't really move that much. You didn't see a huge drop in Airbus shares. Boeing shares, which have already gotten so beaten up, didn't go down that much. And then just in general, there wasn't sort of uh, any kind of reaction. What do you make of that? I think what I make of that is that the market has priced in this kind of uncertainty about trade that's been with us for the past year and, and, and tariffs. This is another volley from Donald Trump. Uh, but in some ways, it's a front that we knew was open in terms of the EU. It's also, to be frank, it's a dispute. It's the Airbus-Boeing dispute that probably puts a lot of people to sleep in the markets that's been around so long. 
<laughs> I tell you what doesn't put them to sleep is uh, China trade negotiations. Although you just mentioned earlier, sometime in the next month, this was a deal we've been expecting for the last couple of weeks to get an announcement. And you know, I thought they were going to have a golf date at Mar a Lago, and you know, maybe sushi. I mean, who knows? But what's what's the latest on the China trade negotiations? Are we are both sides making substantive progress, or is it just going to be a headline? Do you think? So I think they're making substantive progress. I think there's a sign, you know, we're getting signs that there's there's a, there's a real deal that's that's brewing here. What is happening right now? Well, the problem with trade is, and one of the reasons that uh, it tends to not get the attention it deserves sometimes, in my mind, although I'm a, I'm a trade geek, is uh, very simply that it drags on. And just when you're exhausted with uh, a trade negotiation, it seems to drag on for another year or another month. Uh, and that's really what we're seeing here. These things are hard. I was on the phone last last week with someone in the administration who's close to the negotiations and he said look these things are going they're going well it's just really hard so just real quickly here i'm wondering people talk about these trade skirmishes as president trump's doing how much are are many democrats uh, kind of quietly happy about all this in the sense not not from sort of like a, a political standpoint but uh glad that he's doing and fighting these fights uh because they think that they're legitimate so there's a lot of people in Washington and around the world, to be fair, who think that the fight uh, against China is a legitimate fight. There's some legitimate issues there on industrial subsidies and intellectual property and so on. But what you've really pointed to is a big dilemma for the Democrats going into 2020. Trade and trade skepticism used to be their issue. Donald Trump's made it his issue. How do they respond? Sean Donnan, thank you so much for joining us here in studio, our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We uh, love having you here talking all things trade. Sean is a senior trade reporter for Bloomberg News. Well, despite the down market today, the S&P 500 is up 15% this year to date. The NASDAQ is up almost 20%. The question for a lot of investors is what's left in the markets, particularly for seeing slowing uh, global growth, uh, you know, ex uh, evidenced by the IMF data uh, this morning, for example. So to help us dig into that issue, we welcome David Dietz to the show. David is founder, president, and chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management uh, in Summit, New Jersey. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. So we did have some weaker uh, growth uh, numbers coming out of the IMF today. Uh, I think probably giving some of the bears uh, some ammunition that say, gee, this market has really gotten ahead of itself given what appears to be slowing global growth. What say you, David? Well, certainly, um, that was one of that is one of the reasons for the sell-off today. Um, you know, I would note that the IMF is still uh, positing stronger growth in 2020 than this year, so they do see the dip in global activity as somewhat temporary. Um, but, you know, I think from an investor's point of view, the concerns about global growth are not new. And of course, what has helped our markets here is that the story has been pretty positive on the U.S. economy with labor markets, unemployment rate at about a 40-year low, um, uh, job creation was just uh, reported as very good in March. Consumer sentiment is very strong. Small business sentiment is very strong. So I think on balance, what we're focused on here is how well the U.S. is doing. How much credence can we actually give this idea that the IMF projections somehow 
uh, is what's driving the market. I mean, is this just basically that no one really has an incentive to trade and there are a couple of algorithms out there that are kind of like bouncing around a couple stocks, pushing things down a touch before we get actual real news? Well, certainly, if you put it into the context of the success of economists predicting the economy, you do need to take it with a grain of salt. I always remember, you know, uh, Warren Buffett saying they put economists on Earth to make astrologers look respectable. Um, their track record, quite frankly, has not been particularly good. As we look at the IMF's um, report, we're scratching our heads a little bit because although they're positive for 2020, they see the two biggest economies in the world, the U.S. and China um, being slower in 2020 than 2019. I'm trying to figure out how that works exactly. But, you know, in in any event, it's more than just the economy. What it really comes down to is corporate earnings. It comes down to interest rates. um, And it comes down to, you know, the outlook for global trade. I would say that the biggest factor that has driven the market this year is the 180 degree turn in the position by the Federal Reserve from being very hawkish in terms of wanting to hike interest rates to now being very dovish. And uh, many market uh, participants see the next move in the Federal Reserve as a cut in interest rates as opposed to any further hikes. I think at the end of the day, low interest rates um, promote the U.S. housing economy, make corporate acquisitions and capital expenditures much more affordable. And And at the end, I mean, people are looking at Today, for example, 10-year Treasury, 2.48. Very few of us can make our long-term plans work getting 2.48% on our, on our money. So therefore, I think that any kind of pullbacks are ultimately going to be met with positive buying. So David, we're... Later this week, we're going to be coming into the beginning of the first quarter earnings period. we got some of the big money center banks. Um, I think S&P 500 uh, earnings forecast consensus for a 4% decline here in the first quarter. How are you positioned uh, going into the first quarter earnings season? Well, so, I mean, from the macro uh, point of view, um, yeah, it's it's very disconcerting when earnings are the most are the biggest driver of, of stocks to have a forecast for uh, a 4% decline year over year. Take that with a grain of salt for a couple reasons. One is last year's Q1 was very much juiced, as it were, by the cut in interest rates. We don't have a second cut in this year, so that has to be taken into consideration. And of course, at the end of the day, it's not what happened in the last three months. At the end of the day, it's going to be what um, market particip- what these companies forecast for the next, uh, let's say, nine to 12 months. Um, so, and certainly you can make the case anyway that the fact that um, the forecast for earnings is so negative now beats and positive surprises will be much easier. Um, I think what we're doing here is looking at some companies where the uh, they have stellar franchises, but the prospect for near-term earnings is somewhat muted. You mentioned financials. One that we'd like a lot is Wells Fargo. We're going to be hearing from them on Friday. Um, I don't think they're going to say a whole lot because they're in this period now where their current CEO has stepped down. They're in the process of not only finding a new one, but looking outside the bank. I think the catalyst for growth for this uh, blue chip franchise is naming a bank executive, um, which people respect and can turn the bank around. Any names? Uh, Go ahead. Any names that you have? that you would like to see rise to the helm of Wells Fargo? 
Well, certainly um, there's a number of lieutenants um, in J.P. Morgan that have been cited. Um, Actually, Warren Buffett uh, is very high on J.P. Morgan, and they're probably frustrated because Jamie Dimon seems to have no current plans to leave. I think that would make some sense there. Um, Why would Jamie Dimon go from J.P. Morgan to Wells Fargo. Yeah, I, I, I misspoke there. Jamie Dimon is not going to move, but people who want his job oh, who have been oh, I see. under I him see. Oh, I see. Um, would be uh, perhaps interested in taking over uh, arguably a bank just as good at JP, as J.P. Morgan immediately. So we, we had Walgreens pre-announce, and I know that's a name we've talked about in the past for you, that side of the business, that prescription business, the retail business, very difficult. What are your views on, on, on Walgreens? So Walgreens is a company that, that we've moved on to our buy list. Right now, it's trading at about eight times earnings versus a market that's at about 17 times earnings. You know, although much of retail has been gutted by the rise of the internet shopping, we still feel that buying prescription drugs, going in and talking with the pharmacist um, is not so easily displaced by buying online. Plus, of course, all these Pharmacies are now developing clinics so that it could be a low-cost option to get a checkup, uh, to get some medical care at, at, at a lower rate. And, of course, you're always looking for those companies which have size and scale. Walgreens and CVS almost have a duopoly in, in, in this country. Put Walgreens in the context of healthcare. Generally, healthcare is under a cloud. It's usually a defensive sector. Right now, of course, everyone's uh, the the pace of prescription drug inflation has been reduced dramatically uh, due to jawboning from uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle. Of course, there's some concerns as to whether we'll fundamentally change the system yeah. to a single payer. What has happened historically is those have been unbelievably great opportunities to take healthcare um, investment. Yeah. Because normally um, the fear goes away, the the threat of price controls dissipates, yeah. the system doesn't change, and it can be a great way to, to see appreciation on your investment. David Dietz, thank you so much for being with us. David Dietz is founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management based in Summit, New Jersey. We have been in a low interest rate environment for more than a decade. We have been looking at robust credit markets, easy lending standards pretty much across the board. So there's kind of a mystery uh, that's been baked into uh, certain corners of credit markets, in particular, the auto lending sector, which has seen delinquencies rise to a post-crisis high in some cases, as well as the high defaults and delinquencies among some peer-to-peer loans. Joining us now to dig under the hood and explain perhaps why we're seeing that is Adam Temkin, credit markets reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Adam, let's just start there. What are people looking at for the possible cause for the uptick in delinquencies and defaults at a time of easy credit? Well, Goldman Sachs and Moody's Analytics have recently said credit scores, they do not include economic cycles, but economic cycles greatly influence credit scores. So as the economy has expanded, so have the scores. The problem is people's inherent 
risk, their inherent ability and attitude towards paying is the same. So a 550 subprime person today is relatively riskier than a 550 in 2009, and that could be a hidden risk. So the idea here is the FICO scores, which are used by many peer-to-peer lenders and some of these smaller, deep subprime uh, lenders, uh, are not as reliable. Exactly. The scores are migrating up but the risk is the same. And the question is, are lenders accounting for that? Are they raising their minimum FICO cutoffs? Well, Moody's Analytics and Goldman says some of them, the smaller ones, maybe unsophisticated deep subprime auto, they're not. They're not bringing in like debt to income or LTV to have a, it's not a good differentiator anymore, these FICO scores. And this is leading to hidden risk in certain corners. Deep subprime, private credit cards, and peer-to-peer marketplace lending. The categories you just mentioned kind of harken me back to 10 or 12 years ago, okay? So are you trying to tell us, or is Moody's and Goldman trying to tell us that the lending community had not really learned the lessons, or is kind of those lessons have kind of receded into the background? Because this sounds eerily similar. Well, the good news is that some of the larger banks and savvier lenders are including other factors. The worry is complacency with some of the smaller lenders, like Deep Subprime um, and some of the smaller online personal loan lenders. They, They may not be increasing their minimum credit scores. They might not be bringing other factors in. And Goldman's a little worried about this. And Moody's is saying there could be great complacency from these lenders that could lead to losses down the road. All right. So let's put this into some scope here, because there's a question, how much debt is there uh, that is backed by loans that are underwritten with FICO scores for, uh, first and foremost in the mind? I mean, that's how, how much are we talking about here? Well, this is probably not a systemic problem. Uh, if you look at just outstandings, uh, it's about $400 billion worth across those areas that I just mentioned. However, not all of that is securitized. So maybe one fourth of that is securitized, 100 billion or so uh, approximately. So this is not systemic. However, the problem is it's a great risk for lenders. It's a great risk for some of the investors in the deep subprime ABS. Okay. And that's what I was going to ask. So $100 billion of these loans have been securitized. It means they've been pooled uh, into bundles. And then there are bonds that are sold that are backed by the payments that go into those pools. And they're they're sort of given out to the investors depending on which tranche they invested in, depending on, on what the credit rating is and, and where they are in the waterfall structure. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, who are the investors in the riskiest tranches here? I mean, is there is there a sense of, oh, that's your pension fund? Pension funds are look going all the way down to double B and deep subprime auto, asset managers. I mean, across the board, people pretty much think these types of auto loan ABS are safe. And they've generally performed well, although I have to say uh, 30-day delinquencies for subprime auto ABS are at close to a peak now. Does that translate to losses? Here's where it gets tricky. There could be great delinquencies. It doesn't always translate to a loss right away because there's such credit protections, robust. uh, These are structured very well. But a lot of the banks are now saying, do not buy lower rated, you know, auto deep subprime ABS. Stay away. The personal loan ABS that's been securitized only over the last few years, performing pretty, pretty, poorly right out of the gate, honestly. Very high delinquencies. We've not really seen a tightening of underwriting yet, but um, a lot of people stay away from that stuff, that type of peer-to-peer asset-backed securities, which is a newer, untested asset class. 
So it looks like Moody's and Goldman, the reports here, kind of shedding some light on this issue, which we've heard a little bit about, certainly, uh, but maybe not the scope. Has there been any regulatory response or how are the regulators looking at this little slice of the market? There's definitely been a lot of focus on subprime auto. Um, the the bond investors always say, "Hey, we think this is safe. You know, uh, there's great protections." But you know, the Federal Reserve came out in February saying, "Hey, auto delinquencies are at." Seven million people are behind on their payments. So this is kind of a growing theme. Uh, Warning signals are flashing, and some of the regulators are slowly getting involved. You know, it seems to me like one of the biggest consequences of this is to stymie the peer-to-peer lending industry uh, before it really had a chance to gain steam, Paul, because that seems to be uh, one consequence. They're having a harder time making money if the credit... uh, qualifications just aren't there. Yes, and we've had some peer-to-peer folks in here before talking about kind of how they have a demand for their business because some of the banks have stepped away a little bit. So uh, very, that's very interesting, and I think this is a story we're going to hear more about going forward. Uh, Adam Temkin, thank you so much. Credit thank Markets you. reporter for Bloomberg News joining us here in a Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Well, we are fast approaching the April 15th tax deadline. People are scrambling to get their returns done. A lot of tax law changes this year for people to get their hands around, including new tax law changes around alimony and child support. To get the latest on this, we welcome our next guest, Maggie Jondrow. She is financial advisor and founder of Jondrow Wealth Management. She joins us live here in our interactive broker studio. Maggie, thank you so much for being with us. Again, a lot of tax law changes that people have to figure out this year. Talk to us a little bit about the alimony child support changes that uh, are in this year's uh, tax code. Sure. Uh, Thank you for having me. So uh, if you were divorced on December 31st, 2018 or prior to, uh, your uh, divorce decree remains the same unless you decide to amend it. But if you were divorced on January 1st, 2019 or thereafter, alimony has now uh, is different for you the way it is taxed. Uh, so it's essentially flopped. Um, in the past, those that were paying alimony could take that as a tax deduction, and that is no longer the case for those after January 1st, 2019. And those that are receiving the alimony, uh, this is no longer taxable income for you. Okay, so basically it makes it more expensive for people who have to pay alimony, correct? That's right. So how does this, how have you seen this affecting clients so far? Yeah, absolutely. So this is fairly new. So at time will only tell, but experts are concerned that uh, while thinking about uh, and finalizing your divorce decree, there's going to be less incentive to provide greater alimony, much as you said. Um, so, of course, that might be worse in general for the markets. There'll be less money being injected into goods and services, of course. But I'm wondering from your practical experience whether it is affecting uh, the ability of certain people to get the other partner to actually pay alimony. Yes, that is a fear that that's going but, to happen. But, but it hasn't. You haven't seen it play out. It's it's been so new that not not really yet. No. So Maggie, why do you th- why why did the IRS do this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, no one really knows what the IRS does. Or what's, what's what's their stated but, 
policy here? Well, they're hoping that it will make things easier, right? So it, they've also increased um, the standard deduction so that less people are itemizing. And this is probably another way to get people to take the standard deduction versus itemizing. Um, certainly, though, uh, some analysts do believe it will raise revenue for the IRS over the next decade or so. So I'm wondering, just broadening out some of the other tax changes, the SALT uh, issue is one that is very much in the forefront of people's minds. How is that bearing out from your perspective as you talk with clients? Yeah, um, we're here in New York, and uh, New Yorkers and others in the tri-state area, Connecticut, New Jersey, they are being affected the most. They've always taken the greatest SALT deduction historically. So now, as you mentioned, there's a cap of $10,000 as to uh, what, what can be deducted uh, to, from the federal taxes. And so um, both from an alimony standpoint being taken away as a deduction, now at the cap of the SALT tax deduction, and also with the standard deduction being increased, a lot less people are itemizing. So Maggie, you know, it seems like it's a cat and mouse game between the IRS and tax advisors every year. It just kind of goes back and forth. So now you've got this issue about the alimony and, and, and divorce. Are there ways that you know, maybe tax advisors are su suggesting their clients can preserve maybe some of the tax benefit? Sure. I mean, I always encourage everyone to speak to their CPA about their uh, individual situation. Um, but uh, there are still those that will be taking the itemized deduction. Certainly, uh, if you have to uh, deduct more than 24000 if you're married filing jointly. And of course, the standard uh, ways apply. So maxing out that 401k, your retirement plans, of course, is a great way to, um, to, to increase your your uh, deduction. So if people, your clients been kind of freaking out as they realize how different it can be for them? Yeah, um, I think most surprisingly was that uh, the tax brackets were changed. So we still have seven, but uh, obviously where those brackets fall is different. And therefore the withholding table has changed. And I think a lot of clients did not realize that. They did not work with their employer to reflect that. And so people are either not getting as much of a return back or they're actually owing the government money, which I think has been the most surprising. Maggie Jondro, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate you having here. Uh, Maggie Jondro is financial advisor and founder of uh, Jondro Wealth Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.